We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the portion read, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And uh, we see here the intimation that the fullness of divine wrath has been poured out upon the world, upon the earth, upon the sea, and upon the inhabitants. We remind ourselves of what had been stated back in chapter 12 whenever the dragon was cast out of heaven into the earth. And uh, we hear in chapter 12 the rejoicing of heaven, but then verse 12, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. He hath come down unto you. You now are of great interest to him. And that is what we have to understand when we come to consider the portion before us. The interest that the devil does have in the human race and the interest that he has in everyone here this morning. He has come down and he is angry and he is full of wrath and he is full of wrath against God in particular. But since he is but a creature and he wastes his breath, as it were, endeavoring to fight against God, he loses the battle, he takes it out then upon the people of God. He takes his wrath and he directs it toward the church of Christ and the people of God in particular. But he is very ambitious. And that is one of the things I want to draw attention to. You've heard me say it before, and I emphasize it again and emphasize it very much, that it seems to me very few people have an accurate understanding of the personage of Satan. And I don't believe that we seek the understanding we need of exactly who he is and what he does, how he appears in order to work and operate among men. And I believe that it is important that we understand the relationship that exists between Satan and his followers. Or as you go back to Genesis 
his seat. When we talk of the church and the born-again believer, they are referred to sometimes as Christ's seat. They are born again of the Spirit of God and a union exists, a real union exists between their, the, the, between Christ and his people. So much so that the apostle can speak of one body. Ye are members of his body. He's the head, you're the members, but there's only one body. Now when we come to consider the matter of the dragon and the beast, and those who worship him, what are, do we, are we to understand? These are all fragments, as it were, and parties separate one from another. What we have to understand is this, that Satan, the dragon, and the beast, and the harlot woman, and the worshippers of the beast with the wound that was healed and so on, are all of one. They're all of one spirit. They're all directed and motivated by one spirit. It's as though they are one body. You remember going back to the epistle that Paul writes to the Ephesians, there in the second chapter of uh, that epistle, we are reminded, and Paul includes himself among those that he refers to, those who are spiritually quickened, who were previously dead, spiritually dead in trespasses and in sins. But he describes their past history in time past. Ye walked according to the course of this world. You were in the same course as the ungodly, degenerate world. You were in exactly the same course that they were on. Now, the very fact that Paul refers to a course is clear indication that there's some kind of order here. There is some kind of control here. Paul doesn't say you just wandered around aimlessly. Before you were spiritually quickened, your lives were just chaotic and you were just mixed up and you wandered around aimlessly and foolishly. No, he says, you were walking according to the course of the age in which you were living according to the prince of the power of the air. Now it is good to keep that in mind because of what we read in Revelation 16 when the seventh angel poured out his vial, where did he pour it? He poured it out into the air. 
Now, as I said, last Lord's Day, you have every element upon which man depends affected by the outpourings of divine wrath. We have to understand there is the material, visible element, but there is a spiritual warfare going on, and so these are just contributions, as it were, to the real behind-the-scene war between the forces of darkness and the Lamb of God, or the one whose name is the Word of God. Now look at what Paul says. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now the children of God have the indwelling Holy Spirit indwelling them. Now, Paul makes it clear that if we do not have the Spirit of God, we are none of his. It's impossible to be a child of God without the indwelling Spirit of God within us. Now look at what Paul says about those who are still in their sins, who are not regenerated and quickened by the divine power of God. They are also guided and indwelt and motivated by a spirit. But it is the spirit of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So every man, woman, and child in Grafton today is indwelt by some spirit. Now it is either the indwelling spirit of God or it is the spirit of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So every one of us belong to one camp or the other. Now when this seventh uh, vial is poured out, something happens that has never happened in the earth before, never happened in the history of man before. There were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth. Here is something greater than anything in the experience of the human race. So mighty an earthquake and so great. It was so mighty, it was so great that what happens the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Now, we do not dispute for one moment that God, just by breathing out his word, 
could cause such a devastating earthquake that would indeed destroy the cities of this earth. He has the power to do it, and we believe he could do it at any moment. And every earthquake, and every tsunami, and every volcanic eruption, every one of these things is under divine control. We must never forget that. But you will see in the context that great Babylon, the great city, came in remembrance before God, just as Sodom and Gomorrah came in remembrance before uh, God. And so he said to Abraham, he was going down to see that it was so, that they were as wicked as he considered them to be, that his judgments would be seen to be just. Now, in the chapter 16, we noted previously the twofold witness to the righteousness and the justice of God's judgments back in uh, verse 5 and verse 7. Now, what happens? The great city is judged, the great city of Babylon. But note what happens when that city is judged and when that great Babylon is divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. The relationship between the cities of the nations and great Babylon is so so intimate that when Babylon falls, they fall too. So that we're not talking merely about something material. There is that element in it, undoubtedly. But we are talking about something that is part of divine judgment, spiritual judgment. God demonstrating his power against his enemies in this great conflict when Satan is cast out of heaven and targets men on earth. Now, what happens here at the end of chapter 16? Every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was very great. Whatever is taking place here is something that men have not the capacity to deal with. The only thing they can do is resort to blaspheming God. Now, blaspheming God isn't something imaginary. Blaspheming God is real. 
And blaspheming God is an expression of hatred for God. It is an expression of opposition to God. It is a, an expression of the heart itself in the most evil, wicked way that men find within themselves to express their antagonism and their hatred of God. But we don't have any more details here in chapter 16 regarding this event. All we're basically told is there's a great earthquake and it is so terrific that mighty Babylon is uh, split in three and uh, the cities fall with the city of Babylon, the cities throughout the uh, nations. When we come to chapter 17, which we've been in previously, but we said we would return to it, notice now what happens. Verse 1, there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials. One of the seven angels that had the seven vials, that poured out these vials and talked with me and saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. In other words, one of these seven angels, and remember where they've come from. Back in chapter 15, uh, we're told, verse 5, After that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues and so on. And then they are commissioned to go and pour out their vials of wrath. And when each have done that, one of them then comes to John. No doubt, John is wondering, what does this all mean? How do I understand it all? What does it all represent? So one of the angels comes uh, to him and says, Come hither with me now. I will show unto thee what? I will show unto thee the judgment. You have seen the judgment in the form of a vision, but I'm going to now explain it to you. The judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now you go down to verse 15 of this chapter and we read there, He said unto me, The waters which thou sowest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. In other words, this woman sitting upon this beast actually sits universally in control over peoples 
and multitudes and nations and tongues. She has sway over the world as it were. Nations and tongues and peoples and multitudes. Now what does the angel say? Come with me, John, and I will now show or explain to you the judgment of this great whore, this city of Babylon, this influence, the destruction of this power and this influence upon the multitudes, upon the people, and so on. Now, when we come down to verse 3, we read, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and we've looked at that in the past, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. Now we know who the scarlet-colored beast is. We've looked at it in the past. Full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, It is strange, but very often when artists in the past have foolishly tried to portray so many of these pictures in Revelation or, say, in other parts of the Scripture, they use their imagination to portray that which is actually false. Now, I'm sure many of you have seen pictures, or supposedly pictures, of the devil, Satan, Beelzebub, whatever. What kind of a portrayal do you have? That which is hideous, that which is frightening, that which in our consideration is evil and we would say hellish and so on. So that, if that really is the case, you would be miles away from such. You wouldn't want anything to do with such. The devil wouldn't have very much success, would he? because he's going to frighten everybody away from him. Now, he is certainly full of wrath. But he is more subtle. As we go back to Genesis, the serpent, the old serpent, is more subtle than any beast of the field. He's the most subtle of creatures. And that is why we are to put on the whole armor of God in uh, Ephesians 6, because we're up against the wiles of the devil. Not only are we up against his knowledge, which is terrific, and up against his wisdom, which he possesses, But we are up against his wiles. 
And that is why I believe it is necessary to see the kind of power that is behind what is to be judged. The woman and the beast cannot be separated. They are of the same spirit, motivated together. They are one power and one influence, as it were. And we must keep that in mind. Now, what do we learn? From the previous chapter 13, you have the beast that rises out of the water. Now, what are we told in this chapter about the peoples and the the multitudes and the nations and the towns? They are many waters upon which the woman sitteth. She sits where the beast comes out of the waters. Now, waters very often in the scriptures speak of confusion and chaos. And out of the chaos that exists amongst men arises this power, this beast, representing an earthly power, but it is a satanic power a satanic, energized power out of the earth where men are. What were, what were we reading in verse 12? Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. Where do the beasts come from? Out of the earth, out of the sea. They come out from among men. They arise as political, mighty forces amongst the inhabitants of men. They have their origin in hell itself, but these are beasts who are going to engage in the service of the devil, the great red dragon. So they arise, these powers are, as it were, the people's power. You could well refer to them as people power because we hear a lot about that in our day. What do we read? These powers of darkness have a success in causing men to worship the beast. However they do it, they do it. They succeed. At the same time, they are persecuting those who refuse the mark of the beast and refuse to be identified with his kingdom and his power and his worship. But you may well ask, well, if the devil is such a hideous specimen of a a creature, how how is he so successful? Well, that's because, you see, we have a mistaken knowledge or understanding of just who he is. Have you ever sat down and considered all the various names 
and identities by which the devil is identified in Scripture by the Savior and throughout the New Testament. He's called the devil. He's called Satan. He's called the serpent. He's called the tempter. He's called the prince of devils. He, which is the same, basically, he's called Beelzebub. That means the prince of the devils. He's the prince of the power of the world. He's the prince of uh, the world itself. And he is Lucifer and so on. You've got all these different identities. Now, doesn't that tell you something about him? Doesn't that tell you of the many attributes he possesses? The many guises in which and under which he actually operates. The prince of devils. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh, in the children of disobedience. Now, I'm sure you've all heard of the Satanists, those who worship Satan. But they don't actually call him Satan. They worship Lucifer. And the Luciferians, they have their worship And while the Satanists and the Luciferians are not identical, they're very closely associated. Now, the Satanists, with their black mass and their satanic rituals and worship, they worship Lucifer, Lord, and they identify him with Michael, Michael the archangel, who cast Satan, fought with his angels against Satan and the devil and his angels and cast them out of heaven. The Lutherans, or the Luciferians, I should say, better not mix them up. The Luciferians, they, of course, believe that God didn't just have one son, he had two sons. And uh, this is why there was this great fight in heaven. And they believe that actually Lucifer and Michael were brothers. And that Lucifer was the elder brother and he was fighting with Michael to gain authority and influence in heaven. He wanted control of part of the heavenly uh, hosts. Now, of course, we reject all that. But while we reject it, we have to acknowledge it actually exists. Satanists exist. They actually exist. They function. They have their worship. They have influence They have power. The Luciferians, they exist. They are real people. 
They possess real power. They are very religious. But furthermore, they don't say we don't have a Bible. And they don't say we don't believe anything that's in the Bible. They will take much of their religion out of sections of the Bible, putting their own interpretation upon it. But in our Bibles, we do have the names of Satan, and one of them is Lucifer. Now, have we ever bothered to discover how Lucifer appears? If we go back to Isaiah chapter 14, you will see there a description of the king of Babylon. Isaiah chapter 14, and this is a reference to the king of Babylon, the king of the historic Babylon that is pointing forward to mystery Babylon. This is what we read, chapter 13. You have the glory of Babylon falling and so on. But then this is what we read (coughs) in verse 9 of Isaiah 14. Hell from beneath is moved for thee (coughs) to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. All they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou become, art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Babylon, king of Babylon, have you been so weakened, so humiliated, that you're just like us, the ordinary captives? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials, the worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven? O Lucifer, son of the morning, or it can be translated prince, it means Lucifer, one of the meanings is Prince of the dawn. Now the Luciferians, they call him the morning star. The morning star. Now who claims to be the morning star? The Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted Son of God in the throne, in the very book of Revelation, says, I am the bright and the morning star. But he says it, of course, at the end of the book. And in one of the messages to the seven churches, those that overcome are promised 
that they will be given the morning star. So you see, when we come to consider the source of the opposition to the Christ of God and his church, this is where we go back to see depicted for us in mighty Babylon and the king of Babylon a representation or a type, as it were, of Satan himself. And what do we read? How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, prince of the dawn? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, and now I want you to note, All the I wills are all the determination, the ambitions of Lucifer. Verse 13, thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend. I will ascend. Now remember what Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, he gave him advice and counsel as a young pastor and as a shepherd of the flock in 2 Timothy and in uh, chapter 2, verse 24, the servant of the Lord must not strive But be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Something has gone wrong. They've departed from the truth. They're not acknowledging the truth, but they need repentance. Why do they need repentance? To be recovered. From where? That they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by the devil, by him, at his will. Their will is not their own. Their will has become ensnared by another will. A satanic will. Now let's consider how serious this is. This is the devil's will operating in the church. And Paul says, Timothy, you'll have experience of it. You'll have experience of the devil's will operating in individuals. What kind of a will does he have? What does he will? So that when his will operates, What is it aimed at? 
What is he seeking? What is his ambition? Well, chapter 14 of Isaiah again. I will ascend. I will ascend into heaven. Secondly, I will. Well, I will. I will exalt my throne. Whose throne? The prince of the power of the air. The prince of devils. Beelzebub. His throne. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Now is he talking about the stars that shine in the heavens at night? Of course not. You go back with me to the book of Job, there in the chapter 38 of Job. God is asking Job some questions, very humiliating questions, putting Job in his place, make emphasizing to Job how little he really knows. And God asked Job in chapter 38, verse 4, Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare it if thou wast understanding. And then he goes on to say, verse 6, Whereupon the foundations thereof fastened, or hoon head, the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Now these are not the redeemed sons of God. This is at the very beginning before the fall when God's laying the foundations. And he said, when I laid the foundations... The sons of God shouted for joy. And as they shouted for joy, the morning stars sang together. So here you have the glorious heavenly joy and heavenly harmony expressed by the inhabitants of heaven the stars, and the sons of God. Now, what does Lucifer say here? I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I am determined to be higher than those sons of God who sang and are joyed and the stars who sang when God created the world. Then he goes on, I will. You notice these, these expressions. I will ascend. I will exalt. Then now, I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. 
He is ambitious for the highest roles and the highest places and the most extensive power that he can achieve. Verse 14. I will again. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And then it concludes with the fifth I will. I will be like the most high. I will be like the most high. Talk about ambition. Could you have a greater ambition than that? I will be like the Most High. Verse 15, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Now look at Lucifer. He is described here not in some hideous, evil, detestable guise, but he is the son of the morning. He is uh, the shining one. Shining. He is a spirit, but he is a light bearer. He is the one Lucifer, the Luciferians, of course, they claim him as not only the enlightened one, but a symbol of enlightenment, so that they are the worshippers of the one who enlightens them. Now, what is the believer, the child of God? What do they do? They look to the one who says, I am the light of the world. He that dwelleth in darkness, where does he get light from? From me. And those who are the followers of Christ, they walk in that light. Those who are the servants and the children, you remember what Jesus said? He identified men like you and me, flesh and blood, the great uh, representatives of the Sanhedrin. What did Jesus say? They would crucify him, yes. They would stir up the people to crucify him, the Pharisees and the scribes. What did he say? Ye are of your father, the devil. You are the synagogue of Satan. The great Sanhedrin is the synagogue of Satan and you are the children of the devil, though you claim to be the children of Abraham. Now, last week we mentioned in passing, message to the church. God, uh, the head of the church, approved. They had tried them, which say they are Jews, and are not. They're claiming to be the children of Abraham, but they're not. They're the children of the devil, just as Jesus said. 
Now we may look at another portion in the prophecy of Ezekiel, keeping in mind what's before us here in Isaiah chapter 14. In Ezekiel chapter 28, and it is now not the king of Babylon we're talking about, but the king of, (coughs) in chapter 28, the king of Tyrus. Now, the reason the Spirit of God focuses on these cities, these earthly powers, and their kings is to teach us by these pictures what is still to come, what they really represent in the future. Now, verse 11 of Ezekiel 28, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. I note that. Thou sealest up the sum. You couldn't, as it were, expand upon this wisdom and perfection of beauty. Thou hast been, verse 13, in Eden, the garden of God. Well, who are we going to look for in Eden, the garden of God? Well, it certainly wasn't the king of of Tyrus because he wasn't even born. So he is a figure of someone else. And his beauty and his wisdom is figuring that of someone else, some other character. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, and the diamond, and the beryl, and so on. Now, what do we meet with in Revelation 17? A woman attired with all these stones and jewels and gems. Likewise. So it is intended to convey the idea of attractiveness, of outward beauty, and so on. Verse 14 of Ezekiel 28 Thou art the anointed cherub. (laughs) Now, you and I know that the king of Tyrus was not a cherub. So it is obvious that our attention is drawn to him to understand something of the power, the attractiveness of his rule and his reign and his success, but as it were, comparing him with former beauty, former attractiveness, 
that we find back in Eden in the garden of God. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, thou wast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Thou wast perfect in thy ways before there was any war or any conflict. Thou wast perfect in thy ways, the anointed cherub, servant of God, until iniquity was found in thee. Verse 17, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. When we come to read in Genesis that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. That we are to understand is something the devil is proud of. He's very proud of his wisdom. He's very ambitious. That's the devil we're dealing with. An ambitious devil. A proud devil, but a beautiful devil, a beautiful devil. He's not the hideous creature that the artists depict and that's conjured up in the minds of so many. He's beautiful. If he came in here today, he'd have a big smiling face. He'd be shaking hands. He'd be very affable. Because he's the devil. Because he's Lucifer. Because he's Satan. That's why he's so successful. That's why He gets his way. That's why his will determines what so many others will. We are told, thy beauty, thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings, and they shall behold thee, and so on. Now, when we're talking here in Revelation of the world of men full of blasphemy, full of darkness, full of afflictions and plagues, and behind it all is the serpent, the devil, And the powers that he has raised up 
Out of the sea of men and out of the earth of men to control their minds and to make their wills his will. And he can penetrate the very professing church with his will. Why? Because he's so nice. He's so appealing. He's so attractive. He may even appear with some of the very characteristics, it seems, of the Savior himself. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians in his second epistle in the chapter 11, he has to warn the Corinthian believers. And for very good reason. Verse 1 of chapter 11, 2 Corinthians, Would to God, Paul writes, you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. Now, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now that's, that's Paul's desire. That's why he's preaching the gospel. That's why he's laboring to inform the Corinthians and correct the abuses among them, because he wants to present them as a chaste virgin, a pure woman to Christ. But this is what he says, verse 3, But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve, through his subtlety, so your minds, you and Corinth, Your minds in Corinth, you believers in Corinth, your minds should be corrupted. Now let's go back in our minds to Genesis and look at it in the context of what Paul says here or look at what Paul writes here in the context of what happened in Genesis. Whenever our first parents fell into sin and God confronts them after their sin, what did Adam, how did Adam try to excuse himself by saying? When God spoke, Adam said, verse 12 of Genesis 3, the woman whom thou gavest Me? No. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me. She, he says, gave me of the tree and I did eat. Now what did the devil do? What did Satan do? He came to Eve. In come to Adam. 
He knew God gave Eve to be with Adam. Satan came and got Eve alone. Got her when she wasn't with Adam. And deceived her. Now it is interesting, the Satanists who are at the very head of the highest orders of Masonic ritual. The Palladian Masonic ritual, which is the highest possible. They claim that they really go back to Cain. That their origin is with Cain. Cain was the son of the serpent. And that is why he murdered his brother Abel and so on. Now we're not going into that, but these are facts. And you can see that in the satanic worship, the black mass, all that goes on, all the ritual, they will trace so much of it back to the very Bible itself. But when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he tells them or reminds them perhaps of one of the powers that the devil possesses. Satan himself, verse 14, is transformed into an angel of light, into a shining one. He can appear in such a fashion you're actually attracted to him. The shining one in the confusion and in the darkness, well, he's attractive. Young people, you learn that lesson well. The devil is attractive. And he makes himself attractive and his will attractive. And his business attractive. And his work attractive and pleasurable. And when we're in Revelation looking at the awful state in the human race, at the point that we're at, we must understand that the one behind it all is the serpent, the dragon, the devil, the prince of the devils, and so on. If ever we needed Christ, we need him in the day in which we're living. Because all those whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world were led astray. The times that Jesus spoke of, that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived because of who the devil is. But may the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice that we do have thy word with all its information, 
with all its warnings, with all its encouragements. May we cling close to thee. May we each one stay close to the Savior in the dangerous and trying times in which we live. O do thou keep us from the wiles of the wicked one. Bless us, receive us, and pardon us. For the Redeemer's sake, amen.